Welcome to the Just and Sustainable Economy podcast. I'm Isaac Graves. What does it mean to choose a high road future for our economy? That's the theme of today's episode featuring Saru Jayaraman of One Fair Wage. At the time of this recording, Saru was leading Restaurant Opportunity Center United. Before we dive into today's program, we at the American Sustainable Business Network would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Hanson Bridget. Hanson Bridget has been a proud sponsor of ASBN for over a decade and it is an industry-recognized California-based law firm with an expansive platform of legal services and broad base of clients emerging, exporting, or conducting business in the region. Hanson Bridget serves a diverse client list, including large national and global companies, including many sustainable businesses, impact investors, and any company looking to structure their investments to generate social and environmental impact alongside a financial return. Learn more at HansonBridget.com. H-A-N-S-O-N-B-R-I-D-G-E-T-T dot com, or have ASBN connect you with their sustainable business and impact investing practice group. And now, let's choose a high road future for our economy. Saru? How are you all? Good to be with you. (laughs) Um, So my name is Saru, and as you heard, I run a national organization called the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United which I co-founded right after 9-11 together with workers from Windows on the World, which was the restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center, Tower One. On that morning of 9-11, about 73 workers died and about 250 workers lost their jobs and about 13,000 restaurant workers lost their jobs in the months and weeks following the tragedy. And so I was asked as a very young attorney and organizer to start a little relief center in the aftermath of the tragedy that would initially help restaurant workers in New York get back on their feet. And what started as a little relief center post 9-11 has grown into a national organization of 130,000 restaurant workers, 770 restaurant companies, restaurant owners, and about 30,000 restaurant consumers working together for better wages and working conditions in the restaurant industry. And our growth as an... You're going to have to clap about that. (laughs) Thank you. Our growth as an organization really has reflected the explosion in our industry. So we, as the restaurant industry, just surpassed the 13 million worker mark. So that one in 11 American workers currently works in restaurants. One in two Americans has worked in the restaurant industry at some point in their lifetime. How many of you ever worked in a restaurant? Just look behind you, look around the room. This is pretty much uh, every room that I walk into. Most of us have worked in restaurants at some point in our lifetime. And in fact, uh, we actually made world history last year, becoming the first nation on earth in which we are now spending more money on food eaten outside of the home than we are on food eaten inside of the home. We're the only country where that is true. And yet, despite the industry's size and its growth and its impact on all of us, you know, Americans tend to celebrate our culture in restaurants. We do weddings and anniversaries and birthdays in restaurants in ways that people in other parts of the world just don't. We celebrate our culture in restaurants, and yet, despite all of that, its influence, its impact, its size, its scale, the fact that most of us have worked in it, It is the absolute lowest paying employer in the United States. So every year the Department of Labor puts out a list of the 10 lowest paying jobs and every year the seven lowest of the 10 are in one industry, the restaurant industry. And before we say anything else, let's just stop and talk about that. When you have the largest and fastest growing industry in America proliferating the absolute 
bottom of the barrel, lowest paying jobs. It means that we are going from an economy of more than one in three working Americans working full time and living in poverty to by 2021, one in two, one in two, half of all working Americans working full time and living under what we call the LLSIL, the lower income standing, standard of living, you know, the, unable to support themselves, half of Americans, working Americans, working full time and unable, unable to take care of themselves or their families. And as we head in this direction from one in three to one in two, I would love all of you as business owners to just think for a minute what that means for your ability to have consumers going into the future. What happens to the consumption power of America when half of America would need public assistance to survive? What happens to the future of our GDP and our economy when half of America is struggling to put food on the table? What happens to our democracy when people are struggling in pain, on, addicted, because they cannot put food on their own family's table? I will tell you what happens. Demagogues and fascists rise. Why does that happen? It happens because when people are suffering, like the workers that I represent, they have, don't have time to vote. They don't even want to vote because both parties have left them behind at ridiculously low wages. They, they do not care to get engaged politically. For those of you that are so concerned about climate change, it will take political will in this country, and we cannot do it when half of the country cannot afford to survive, let alone care about climate change. There is no future for addressing climate change if we ignore half of the country. And so how have we gotten to this place? How have we gotten to this place that we're in a few years going to get to half of the country unable to consume the products that you all so lovingly and wonderfully and sustainably produce. How, are we, how have we gotten here? I'll tell you how we've gotten here. We've gotten here because <laughs> all of our research shows that you've got the nation's largest and fastest growing industry, our industry, proliferating the nation's lowest those paying jobs, not because that's the only way to run a restaurant, but because of the money, power, and influence of a trade lobby called the National Restaurant Association. We call it the other NRA, and I myself, before I wrote my last book, I thought they couldn't have been around for more than 50 years max, because the chains that lead the other NRA, the IHOPs, the Applebee's, the Olive Gardens, they haven't been around that long. The other NRA couldn't have been around that long. But in doing research for my last book, we actually uncovered that they've been around in various forms since emancipation of slavery. And that, in fact, tipping as a practice originated in feudal Europe. It was something that aristocrats and nobles gave to serfs and vassals, but always on top of a wage. It was noblesse oblige. It was an extra or a bonus to a hardworking serf or vassal who received a wage. When that idea came to the States, it was in the 1850s and 1860s, it was rich Americans traveling to Europe, coming back, trying to show off that they knew the rules of Europe. And do you know, there was a massive populist resistance to the idea of tipping in the US. 
People said we're a democracy. That's a vestige of feudalism. We should get good service regardless of how much we can afford to tip. And by the way, we think employers should pay their workers, not customers. And that movement, by the way, six states in the U.S. passed complete prohibitions on tipping during this time as a result of this movement, which spread to Europe, was picked up by the labor movement in Europe, and got rid of tipping in much of Europe with this rallying cry, we are professionals, we don't live on your tips. But here in the States, we went in the exact opposite direction because of our ugly slave history, because of our ugly racial caste system in the United States, because in the 1850s, when tipping first came, emancipation was on the way. When emancipation happened, the predecessor to the other NRA demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves, not pay them anything at all, and let them live exclusively on customer tips. And that idea that a mostly black female workforce at the time could live on a zero-dollar wage as long as tips brought them to the full minimum wage was made law in 1938 as part of the New Deal when FDR gave everybody the right to a minimum wage except for tipped workers who were given a zero-dollar wage as long as tips brought them to the full minimum wage. And we went from zero in 1938 to the whopping $2.13 an hour, which is the current federal minimum wage for tipped workers in the United States. States, a $2.13 increase over 80 years. <laughs> and today, there are 43 states, including New York, that perpetuate this legacy of slavery with a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers based on the argument that the Restaurant Association loves to make when they're on debates with me on television. It's okay. These are white guys working in fancy fine dining steakhouses in midtown Manhattan or here in Brooklyn. They're making $150,000 a year in tips. There's no reason to pay them a wage when, in fact, 70% of tipped workers in the United States and in New York, and in Brooklyn, are guess who? They are women. They are women. They are women who work in IHOPs and Applebee's and Olive Gardens and casual restaurants across America, in New York, diners. Their median wage, including tips, is nine bucks an hour. 40% are single moms. They struggle with the highest rates of economic insecurity. They use food stamps at double the rate of the rest of the U.S. workforce, which means the women who put food on our tables in America can't actually afford to feed their own families. And worst of all, they have the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry in the United States. Because when you are a woman who has to live on tips, because your wage is so low, it goes to taxes. You must tolerate whatever a customer does to you, however they touch you or treat you or talk to you, because the customer is always right. The customer pays your bills, not your employer. And when this is the first job for most of us, this was the first job for most people in this room. This is the first job for most American women. This is how young women in America are introduced to the world of work. This is how they learn what is acceptable, tolerable, normal, legal, ethical. A workplace in which they are told by their managers, this is research, not anecdotal. Dress more sexy, show more cleavage, wear tighter clothing so that you can go out and make more money and tips. They aren't told to tolerate harassment. They are told to go out and encourage it. And the more harassment they can get, the better worker they are, the more tips they will make. Fortunately, there are seven states that got rid of this system many decades ago. California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska. All 
many decades ago said, oh no, we're going to require this industry, like every other industry, to pay the full minimum wage with tips on top, as was done in feudal times. The rest of the country is in a pre-feudal state. And these seven states require that they pay the full minimum wage. If you listen to the other NRA, you'd think, we don't have restaurants in California. All restaurants must have fallen through a sinkhole in the ground. And instead, when we've done statistical regression analysis, we find these seven states have higher restaurant sales per capita, higher job growth in the industry, higher job growth among tipped workers, higher rates of tipping. Turns out people tip better when they're paid better and one half the rate of sexual harassment. Because it turns out that when you pay a woman an actual wage, when you pay a woman an actual wage, she doesn't have to put up with anything and everything from the customers because she can rely on a paycheck from her boss like every other worker in every other industry. So we, at my organization, Several years ago, we said, if these seven states can do it, every state can do it, Congress can do it, we can actually require this industry to pay the full minimum wage, let tips be on top of that, we can do it together. That's the high road future that we see for our economy, one in which women actually get a wage, a livable wage. And we started moving in this direction, and the first people to come to support us actually wasn't the typical allies you'd expect in the labor movement, it was restaurant owners. It was amazing restaurant owners who said, you know what, you're right. <laughs> this is an unsustainable business model. It doesn't work. People like Danny Meyer and Tom Colicchio, people like Alice Waters and Zingerman's in Michigan, amazing restaurants who said, you're right. This is a better business model. We need to move away from this legacy of slavery and we can do it because restaurants in those seven states do it all the time. There's no reason why we couldn't do it too. And with their support, we passed legislation. In November of last year, Me Too and Time's Up happened. I was at the Golden Globes with Amy Poehler representing the restaurant industry. We walked the red carpet, we got all kinds of press. And as a result, Governor Cuomo announced that he would make New York the eighth state to eliminate the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers, and we are moving in that direction. And then in June, we passed this on the ballot in Washington, D.C. The, the city council is trying to overturn it, but they won't succeed. And in September, something extraordinary happened. We collected 400,000 signatures, restaurant owners and workers together, to put this on the ballot to get rid of the $3 wage in the state of Michigan. We were ordered to be on the ballot and out of terror that this would drive working people, people of color and women to the polls. The Republicans who control the state legislature took it off the ballot and made it law. Tea Party Republicans in the state of Michigan tripled the wages of the poorest women in Michigan because they were so afraid and they knew that this would drive working people to the polls. And that is something they knew that unfortunately our side of the political aisle has not figured out. And that is that when you give women, people of color and working people who typically don't vote a reason to vote beyond a candidate or a party that has frankly left them behind at two and three dollars an hour. 
When you talk to them about their pocketbook, which is the thing that is actually the greatest struggle in their lives, they vote. And when they come out to vote, they will vote with us on climate change. When they come out to vote, they will vote with us on gender equity, reproductive justice, voting rights, redistricting, all the other issues we care about. But here's the problem. Largely, our side of the aisle has ignored this population. How do I know? I know because I called our side of the aisle, and I'm just going to speak freely because I can, and I don't know your political affiliations, but I'm going to go ahead. I called the campaign during 2016. I said, I'm sitting on 13 million mostly women who mostly don't vote, mostly single mothers. Help me reach them. I know the issue that will drive them to the polls, and nothing happened. They didn't come to Michigan. We lost Michigan by 11,000 votes. There are 435,000 restaurant workers in Michigan who, when they are mobilized, will determine the future of every state election in Michigan going forward. But we don't, we forget them. We don't engage them. And somehow we think we can work on climate change. Somehow we think we can work on all the issues we care about, leaving out half of the country, leaving them behind in the depths of poverty. So, as we've been moving these campaigns, the most extraordinary and beautiful thing has happened. When Trump was elected, we had 200 restaurant companies working with us. Today, we have 770 restaurant companies working with us. Every day, a new company joins. For those of you New Yorkers, today, Little Beat joins. So go to Little Beat. <laughs> Lots of great companies keep joining because they are sick of the old model. They come with us to Congress and to state legislatures. They say the Restaurant Association doesn't speak for us. We see another path that's better for the bottom line. We see a path of less turnover and higher productivity and higher profitability by treating people well, by allowing them to live their lives, allowing them to get politically engaged. And here's the thing about that amazing group of people. We are helping them, regardless of what happens policy-wise, we are helping them transition from lower wages to higher wages. We have created a curriculum to train restaurants in how to move to higher wages. We're working with the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley to make it an MBA certificate course. We've created a guaranteed loan fund to provide capital to restaurants who want to move in this direction. We've created a consumer support system. We have an app called the ROC National Diner's Guide that tells you which restaurants are doing the right thing, and we've been mobilizing consumers to support restaurants that are moving in the right direction. But. With all this support, what we ask in return is not just that they change their own practices in their own company, but that they stand up and speak out and say enough is enough. That is a tired and unworkable business model. This is the high road and it actually works. And we need policy change, not just individual restaurants moving in this direction. We need policy change that will lift all of us together. And so this is my plea to you, because I know you are incredible, amazing, sustainable business owners. I know that for many years, this association has been doing great things in helping great businesses do great things for your people with your business. But at this time, we are facing an existential crisis as a nation. Our economy and our democracy are at risk. 
And so we need business owners like you to not just do amazing things with your own company, but to join us in calling for policy change that will ultimately uplift the lives of half of America that is struggling right now. Minimum wage is going to be moving through the U.S. House of Representatives because the U.S. House of Representatives is going to be different as of January. It is going to pass. It is going to move in the first 100 days, I know, <laughs> because I've been working on it. $15 and the elimination of the sub-minimum wage is going to move in the first 100 days. Will you all come to D.C. and testify as business owners that you actually agree with raising the minimum wage because you know there is no future for business without half of America being able to consume? Will you come with me? Will you speak up and move your colleagues, your fellow business owners? For too long, we've had some business owners that say, I... Look, I can do great things for the people in my company. I believe in treating my own people well. I believe in a good business model for me, but I don't feel comfortable pushing my peers. There's one problem with that. We saw it during Me Too, right? We saw the problem of men standing by while women are getting harassed. We're seeing the problems with all of us standing by when certain groups are being targeted and attacked. We can't do that anymore. We can't be bystanders when our economy and our democracy are in crisis. We need to push our peers and we need to push for policy change that will save our country. Because if we care about anything, this earth, our people, justice, we must actually change the system that keeps half of America in incredible poverty, crushing poverty that does not allow them to feed themselves or consume the beautiful products that you all produce. Thank you. That was Saru Jayaraman. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. And a special thank you to our guests for participating in today's episode of the Just and Sustainable Economy podcast. And, of course, thank you to our partner and sponsor, Hanson Bridget. Learn more at HansonBridget.com. And don't forget... Don't forget to subscribe to the Just and Sustainable Economy podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. ASBN's vision is a sustainable economy that is stakeholder-driven, regenerative, just, and prosperous. Visit us at asbnetwork.org and consider joining the movement. I'm Isaac Graves. Thanks for listening.